Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you a question this morning, what is the deadliest animals out there? What would you say? Would you say it is something like a grizzly bear? Would you say it is something like a great white shark? Would you say it's something else? I don't know about you. I enjoy watching some of the world's deadliest animal shows there are. Uh, the beauty of having little kids and needing a, a subscription of Disney Plus is on Disney Plus there's National Geographic shows. There, there's the ability to watch some of the world's deadliest. There's series and shows such as World Deadliest in Africa, the world's deadliest in other parts. There's also one called the world's deadliest snakes. I hate snakes. I'm Indiana Jones type. I hate snakes. But there's something fascinating about these creatures that slither on their belly in all the disgust and all the scariness and all the hatred for them. There's something striking, pun intended. These animals are powerful creatures and they're deadly. Even that of a rock python, which slithers on its belly and doesn't kill with venom, but with wrapping and suffocating its prey to death. It's a deadly animal. Then add in something like a king cobra, which spreads the hood over its head to strike fear into its enemy. Its venom is deadly. Or snakes common to me growing up were that of the water moccasin or um, rattlesnakes growing up, copperheads. These were deadly. But none of these are strike as deadliness as something like a black mamba in Africa. A snake so venomous that it will kill a human within 20 minutes of striking if anti-venom is not immediately given. Then there's the spitting cobra. The cousin of the king cobra. It has a greater accuracy and aim than Brett Favre or Tom Brady ever could. That's respect to those two, but the, the spitting cobra is able to hit its target from six feet away accurately. It sprays the venom. Even the, the muskrats that are able to escape from these snakes and their venom aren't able to attack something like a spitting cobra because it sprays the eyes and causes them to run off. And yet there's something more deadly. There's something more deadly than these deadliest animals and snakes around us. Something else that spews and spits venom. It's off the tip of our tongues as we speak. Brothers and sisters, that's where we come this morning. James as he continues to lay out what it means to be spiritually whole, challenges us. Here's the deadly tongue, more deadly than the deadliest of animals, more venomous than the most poisonous of snakes. Brothers and sisters, will you open your Bibles to James 3, beginning in verse 1. You can find that on page 1200 in the Red Pew Bible in front of you. As we have been working our way through here, the book of James, we continue again to learn what it means to be spiritually whole and complete and perfect. But we meet opposition this morning because the reality is we come to a task that it is almost impossible to do. And it is impossible in our own strength. 
But James wants to warn us and to point us where we find our hope. So hear the word of the Lord then from James 3, beginning in verse 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. You know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. That no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Just a reminder, James is a hard letter. In James 3, 1 through 12, there's only small glimmers of hope. And that's within knowing the greater context of James. For the record this morning, my intention was to preach James 3, 1 through 4, 12. That didn't happen. Too much ground to cover. And yet, just I, I give this because this is a hard passage. It's hard words, but words we need to hear. Words that we need to take in and allow the gospel to change us, to transform us, even to that of our tongues. So what's the point of this? What's the point then of James 3, 1 through 12? Well, here's the main idea, I think, of this passage. And then if I'm doing this teaching thing rightly, the main idea of this sermon as we pursue spiritual wholeness, it is vital, Christian, that we bridle our tongues. For where the tongue goes, so the rest of us. Let me repeat that, and it's there on the screen. As we pursue spiritual wholeness, it is vital, Christian, that we bridle our tongues. For where the tongue goes, so the rest of us. We're going to unfold this point this main idea in four separate points. The powerful tongue, the deadly tongue, the inconsistent tongue, and the perfect tongue. They'll be on the screen shortly if you need to write them down. The powerful tongue, the deadly tongue, the inconsistent tongue, and the perfect tongue. Point one, the powerful tongue. James 3.1 not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
Our passage starts with a warning, a warning aimed at teachers. These aren't just any teachers. If you're a teacher in the education system, you can take a deep breath while it's important you speak well. This isn't directly aimed at you. It can apply to you, but it's not directly aimed at you. It's aimed to those who teach God's word, to those within the church who teach in a formal and public setting. This warning, though, seems strange because here James has been writing, telling us what it means to be spiritually whole. He's writing to a people who are dispersed and scattered because of persecution. James, shouldn't many more be rising up to teach God's word as we're scattered? Isn't this part of fulfilling the Great Commission? Isn't this part of the need for people to hear God's word? Yes. James will go to argue. James doesn't contradict this. There's a great need for many more to be raised up and go out and teach just as there is today. Brothers and sisters, there is a world in ruins that needs our aid. There are people groups around the world who have never heard of this gospel of Jesus Christ. There are more that need to be raised up and sent out from our midst to all over. From down the road to Timbuktu. The gospel needs to go out, but this doesn't mean we rush with carelessness. James' warning here is, yes, there's a need, but we must not be hasty in this. Because there's danger for the teacher of God's word. What does he say here in verse 1? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You see that James doesn't exclude himself. He's not saying just you teachers. He's saying we We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Because we are heralds of God's word. We're the very ones who are called to proclaim the truths about God. The truths about the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what we're tasked with doing to teach this word. But here's the danger. We're we're judged with a greater strictness. And why the greater strictness? Well, because we're publicly using our tongue. And there's a danger with the tongue. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Brothers and sisters, The danger for the teacher is how much more and more publicly are they using their tongues to teach. They're susceptible to telling lies or trying to gain an audience, a crowd, to be appealing to their hearers. And therefore, they're tempted to forsake this word. Brothers and sisters, this is why the warning. Stricter judgment comes on those who teach. Not just on me as a preacher, but every Sunday school teacher, every Bible study teacher, any formal teachers, the other elders. This applies this warning of a greater strictness. This is both a means of encouragement and a warning for those who teach or pursue this idea of teaching. First, an encouragement. If you are currently in a public teaching role in our church, you have a blessed opportunity. You have the opportunity to teach and to herald the greatest news there ever was. 
the news of Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity to pour out into others as you teach them, to instruct them in the way, the way of life. What a joy and privilege. But it comes with a warning. We must not be slothful in our teaching. We must not be lazy in what we do. We must be faithful because we are judged with greater strictness here. Does that mean the rest of us get off scot-free this morning? No. Yes, the warning primarily starts here for teachers. And we need to heed this warning. But we all need to heed this warning. Because again, what does it say here in verse 2? For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We all stumble when it comes to the tongue. Notice that contrast. We all stumble, but if one doesn't stumble, if one is perfect in his tongue and saying, then he's a perfect and whole man. Isn't that the end goal? Look back to James 1.5. The end goal of, or 1.4, the end goal of Christian discipleship. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The perfect man is the goal of our Christian discipleship. But where does it start? It starts with the tongue, not ends. The end of Christian discipleship is perfection. Therefore, to start, we must start with laboring to tame this most powerful and deadly tongue. This is where discipleship begins. Because notice what James writes here again in verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Where our tongue goes, so the rest of our body. Where our tongue goes, so the rest of our body. Think about it. Something so small controls the rest of our body. But James doesn't leave us to just take him at his word. He uses real life, tangible examples. He uses this word bridle in verse two, and he picks it up here in verse three and then adds another illustration. Look at what it says in James three, three and four. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds They are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Maybe you're unfamiliar with a horse. Maybe you're unfamiliar with riding. If you're an expert, you're all familiar with these terms. Please be patient. I want this to be clear for all of us. Think about it. A bridle is this leather strap with a a metal bar that goes between it. And this bit is then put into the horse's mouth. Reins are attached to this and put over so that the rider, especially the inexperienced, can hold on a little bit, but also then control the horse to go to the left or to the right, wherever it is meant to go. Here's this leather strap, this bit, and it controls this massive, powerful animal. Most horses sit at an average of five foot on the back. That means... 
we're not getting up on a horse by simply barely uh, stepping over. We can't be the big show getting into the ring and stepping over the top rope in a wrestling arena. We don't do that on a horse. We have to put our foot up and lift it high to put in the stirrup and then lift our leg up. And some of us need even more help. If you're on the shorter side, you, you can acknowledge this. If you're familiar with horses, you need a step stool or a ladder or somebody to boost you up and get on. And this little bridle, this little bit, controls such a powerful animal with all that muscle. Something so small controls something so big and powerful. But James doesn't stop here. He takes it a step further. I'm not lost where I am. We're, we're in the Northwoods. We're familiar uh, with, with this. Many of you own boats. Some of you own very nice boats. And the picture here of this next one is that of a ship and its rudder. You have these powerful boats, these powerful ships that are able to be turned and controlled by a little tiny rudder. Or maybe an outboard motor. But think of even more importantly the big cargo ships that would have been used. The big fishing ships on the Sea of Galilee that would have been being mostly referred to. These massive ships bigger than your fishing boats and pontoon boats are being stirred by this little rudder on the back. They're being controlled. Something again so massive, so big, controlled by something so small. This is James's point. The tongue, though it's small, is so powerful. It's like that of a horse and a bridle. It's like that of a ship in its rudder, in its smallness, and its power. The tongue itself is able to either speak life or to be deadly and destroy. And it flows from what is in us. Matthew fifteen eighteen says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Therefore, brothers and sisters, as we think about our tongues and bridling them, we must beware. It's we speak what comes out of us, what's already in the inner depths of us. We're going to look at this more in James 4 next week. God will. We're going to look at that more. But the reality is we speak what is already in us, what is within us. It's what corrupts us. And what is it we speak? What is it that comes out of our speech? That's where we turn in our second point. The deadly tongue. Verse 6. Or verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. This forest is able to be sparked by such a, a small or this blaze is able to be set ablaze by just a tiny spark. Now, I know at least one has served as a firefighter. I, too, have been a part of volunteer firefighting. All it takes to set a whole hillside or a forest ablaze is one cigarette butt in the midst of dry season. And it sets it all ablaze. A whole hillside can be gone in less than 10 minutes. It can all be ablaze. Everything destroyed. And that's what our tongues do here. How? Well, because our tongues are evil. 
Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. That's strong language, James, here, though, tells us our tongues are set on fire by hell itself. Now, keep in mind, Christian, this is being written to who? Brothers and sisters. It's being written to Christians, this warning about the tongue. This isn't just to the outsider. This is to the one he, who has been saved by Jesus, that their tongues, too, have been set on fire by hell because they're instruments of hell as they speak. They're instruments of unrighteousness. They're instruments to cut and destroy those around Notice how evil and dangerous the tongue is. Verse 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Think about here what James is saying. Every beast Every sea creature, every reptile is tameable by mankind. Think about it. You go to the circus and what do you see? You see tamed elephants and lions. The tame beasts are there and tamed by man. You go to SeaWorld and what do you go to see? You don't go to see the sea lion show. You go to see Shamu, a killer whale tamed and trained to perform shows. To jump and do all of these performance things. We tame a killer well. We tame that of even that of a king cobra swaying to the flute that someone plays. So the cobra sways side to side. We tame all of these beasts. But the tongue is not tameable by mankind. It is not able to be controlled. That's how dangerous it is. But it says more here. The tongue is deadly. It is full of venom, of poison. It is restless evil. Brothers and sisters, think about all the ways we destroy one another with our words. How careless we are. Here's what David Gibson writes. In his book, Radically Whole, he writes... The tongue has the power to tear and pierce and paralyze and poison like an axe separating a limb from the body, a sword separating flesh from the bone or an intravenous drip of battery acid into the soul. As we speak, our words that we use are like that of a spitting cobra. We take them and we spray and our enemies and our friends and our family's face in the way we use those words. Words that are destructive. Words that hurt and tear apart. The old saying is, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt. Friends, that is folly. We try to downplay the damage of words in a saying like that. We try to downplay and say words really aren't that bad. They're, they're kind of pointless, essentially. That's essentially what we're saying with that statement. Words don't hurt. Yes, they do. Words cut at us. They're like 
fangs. They're, they're like the, that of a wolf's mouth biting in and ripping its prey. That's what words can do. That's how we use our words. And it's not just our enemies we use words this way for. Think about this past week, maybe even this morning. How have you spoken to your spouse if you're married? Children, parents, how have you spoken to one another? Have you used words that are cutting? Words that demean, diminish their identity as being image bearers of God? Have you dismissed those words? Have you used your words to tear them down without any attempt or purpose of building up? That's how we use our words. We use our words to destroy. We use words that are filled with lies and destruction. This is the danger and the deadliness of our tongues. Our tongues need to be put in check. Our words cut to the heart and to the soul of one another. Speaking condescending words, aggressive words. We lie, we flatter, we backbite, we slander, we swear, and we blaspheme. Do we see the deadliness here of our tongues? Brothers and sisters, if you still doubt this, I want you to think of how you're going to speak on your way home. Give it an hour, give it two, give it the day. Our words will cut down if we're not careful. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that even something as simple as gossip, we struggle to control with our tongues. I love how, again, and radically whole David Gibson puts this. He says, gossip is essentially inappropriate reports given to inappropriate people at inappropriate times. Brothers and sisters, we can't even tame our tongue and keep ourselves from joining the gossip circle. We have to be in there telling somebody's business, even if it's true at inappropriate times or to inappropriate people that have no business knowing that. Think about it. If we can't stop something as simple as putting gossip to death, how are we ever going to tame our tongues? This is the deadliness of our tongues. They destroy other people's lives and reputations. They start wars. They start fights. Brothers and sisters, let us beware of the deadliness of the tongue. But it's not just deadliness that we get hit with. The reality is our tongues are also inconsistent. And that's where we turn in our third point here. The inconsistent tongue. Verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Think about it with our tongues. One moment we are praising God and singing praise to him. And then the next we are cursing. We are tearing down. We are destroying one another with our tongues. Don't believe me. Think about it. We've sang four songs already this morning. We're going to sing a fifth in closing. The first one being come thou fount. Think about the words of the, the first verse here of Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of redeeming love. We ask the Lord to teach us this melodious sonnet. To teach us his love, talking about his love, giving him praise through song, 
singing the word, we give praise to God. But friends, how many of us within an hour before lunch is over will have used a word to destroy somebody made in the likeness of God? Particularly that in our own household or whoever we're going to meet. Or maybe on our way, maybe we're going to encourage a brother or sister for lunch after and on the way somebody cuts us off and with our tongue we're cursing an image bearer of God after having just praised God. You see the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of our tongues. We praise God and yet then turn and curse those made in the very image of God. This should not be, James goes to tell us. He uses again another real world example. Verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Think about it. The mighty Mississippi, a powerful and great river as it floods into and fills and empties in the Gulf of Mexico. Do you have salt water and fresh water mixing at any point? No. It instantly goes from being that of fresh water of the Mississippi, though as muddy as it is, Trust me, I've driven across it plenty in Memphis. As muddy as it is, it stops at that being that muddy freshwater and becomes the salt of the Gulf of Mexico. These things don't mix. Neither does the fig and olive tree produce the other. The olive tree doesn't produce figs and the fig tree doesn't produce olives. They don't mix. They don't go together. Then why, James essentially is telling us, are our tongues so hypocritical? Why does it mix where our tongues praise God one moment while cursing those in his image? Brothers and sisters, do we see the inconsistency of our tongue, the hypocrisy of it? But here's something we need to know. Yes, our tongues are untamable. Our tongues are deadly. They're inconsistent. But I want us to hear these words from St. Augustine. He does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no one of men, so that when it is tamed, we confess that this is brought about by the pity, the help, the grace of God. We in and of ourselves cannot tame this tongue. But while we use our tongues to use words carelessly and hurtfully and in deadly ways, there's a perfect word. And that's where we turn in our fourth and final point this morning. Turn back with me to James 1.18 this morning. James 1.18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Our only hope of redemption from the deadliness and the destructiveness and the untamableness of a tongue is the word himself. The word made flesh. The word who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God. The very word that became flesh. All of this is found in John 1 if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. This word who became flesh came so that he could purchase us by the word of truth. The hope of the gospel. 
Friend, maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you are so confused at this moment. What in the world is this guy talking about? I want to speak directly to you if you have yet to profess faith in Jesus. This word became flesh in order to redeem us. To take away our sins by living the perfect life and dying a death on a cross. So that he could be wounded for our transgressions. That he could speak life into us when no one else could. So that we may know this way to life itself through him and him alone. Friends, if this is you, I want you to see the hope that is ours. The world will tell you that there's other ways, that there's a plurality of ways to life. It will try and say, look at the church's hypocrisy in their speech even alone. Maybe you're wrestling with that. Wait, you just said we're hypocritical, so why should we believe you? Well, friend, because this is the only way. The world might tell you, be true to yourself, believe in yourself, follow your own heart, your own leading. But does that actually speak life? Does it speak hard words about the way to true life? That's what's being proclaimed here this morning in the gospel. The only way to true life is through Jesus. Here's life being extended. The question is, will you see this truth that we are sinners in need of a savior? And will we humble ourselves? Look at us or listen as I read Isaiah verse six or chapter six, verses five and six. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is the way to life, to humble and acknowledge our need and our unworthiness. To acknowledge that we are a people of unclean lips like Isaiah. And yet to confess our need of mercy and grace. And trusting in the Lord Jesus who comes and who cleanses us. Who removes that guilt. Just as the seraphim did for Isaiah there in Isaiah 6. Friends, this is the way to life. Hear the word of truth that is capable of saving you. But brothers and sisters, this too then should be a means of encouragement to us. Because we too, as Christians, still struggle with this unclean tongue. That we are still a people of unclean lips. And we regularly need to be reminded that we still need Jesus. We need to regularly be humbled that we are sinners that still need Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is why James 3 matters to us, even in its hardness, that we are a people who still need Jesus to transform us, to work in us, to save us. Yes, we have already been adopted into the family of God as Christians, but he is still at work perfecting us. He is about this work and he will continue to be at this work. Brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge this humility, this ongoing need. 
Because it's the perfect word alone that can tame our tongues. But brothers and sisters, we also need to see that then as part of this word of truth speaks, it needs to be getting into us. We need to be a people committed and disciplined to regularly getting into the word so that the word can get into us and then out of us as we speak. Teenagers, I want to speak to you directly for a moment. Make it a habit now to get into the word of God on a regular basis. Make it a priority as you are learning and setting routines to be in the word. This applies to the rest of you, but I'm speaking directly to them. Get into the word so that that word can get into your heart and come off your tongues. That you can maybe actually reverberate that word to others and speak life into them. As you learn how Jesus actually speaks to us and cuts us with his word. But he does so not to destroy us, but to open us up and to heal us. To speak words of life and truth. This call to speak words of life, to speak words well, doesn't mean we don't ever say a hard word. Brothers and sisters, part of speaking truth is that we have to confront one another in sin and speak hard words of correction and discipline, even to our kids. But the goal isn't to tear them down, it's to point them to Jesus so that they may know him and follow him and love him, to build up. And young people, friends, brothers, sisters, this is what we want to do with one another. We want the words of Jesus to get into us so that we are speaking that life back to one another. That we are laboring to encourage and build one another up. We want to be a people that do not use words to destroy, but build and speak life. Brothers and sisters, let us at Landa Lakes Bible Church be a people then that labor to speak this kind of way to one another. Let our conversations be so filled with the hope and the truth of the gospel, speaking gently and boldly to one another, that we labor to speak this abundant life in one another's lives. So that we can point one another always to Jesus. Because he's the only one who can tame our tongues. He's the only one that then can tame our whole bodies and correct us of the sin that is still flowing within us. We need Jesus. We need this warning. But there's another warning here we need. Go back to verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. Brothers and sisters, even though we must labor to tame our tongues and tame our bodies, that we must labor in the power of Jesus, the power of his word and the work of the Holy Spirit, though we must labor for this, we're going to fail. We're going to continue to stumble in this because we've not yet reached perfection. But here's why this matters. Then we must be patient with one another. We must be patient with one another because we're still going to fail in the way we speak to one another. And we need to show grace to the person who speaks poorly to us because we too are going to need that same grace, the same very grace that we have in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let us show grace. 
Let us labor to control our tongues by looking to Jesus because he's our only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.